This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by HostGator, where you'll get 24-7 live support via chat, phone, email, one-click WordPress installs, easy-to-use website builder design services and marketing services like SEO and PPC, and for my listeners, a 30% discount. Go to HostGator.com slash promo slash duct tape. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is Chesley B. Sullenberger III, but you might actually know him as Captain Sully Sullenberg. He is probably most known for what has been called the Miracle on the Hudson, the emergency water landing of the U.S. Airways flight on the Hudson River, which saved all 155 passengers and crew. He is currently the Chief Executive Officer of Safety Reliability Methods, Inc., and is also the author of Highest Duty, My Search for What Really Matters. So, uh, Captain Sully, thanks for joining us. John, great to be with you. So, I, I know you've told us a thousand times, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but I'd love to hear, since I have you on here as, a, as a, my guest, I'd love to hear kind of your quick you know, recounting of uh, that uh, day on the Hudson River. After 42 years of flying and 29 years as an airline pilot, uh, where we worked so hard to be vigilant and to uh, plan and anticipate, we worked so hard never to be surprised by anything. Just 100 seconds after takeoff from New York's LaGuardia Airport, we encountered a large flock of large birds, Canada geese, hmm. dozens of them. Uh, we didn't. Uh, have a chance to avoid them. We saw them two or three seconds before we hit them, but not enough time to maneuver a large jet airplane away from them. And then we uh, felt the engines being damaged as they ingested these birds that weigh eight or ten pounds and have five foot or six wingspans. Uh, I could hear terrible noises I'd never heard an engine make in flight before. I could feel terrible vibrations as the engines were being damaged. And then the thrust loss was sudden, complete, symmetrical, both engines at once. It felt as if the forward momentum of the airplane nearly stopped in midair. It felt as if the bottom had fallen out of our world as the thrust was removed as we were climbing away from New York. Um, and then uh, we began very quickly to realize what had happened, uh, that we were going to have to land very soon, that we were using the, the forward motion of the airplane was coming from gravity and not from thrust anymore as we were gliding back down toward the earth, and I had a limited amount of time to choose where that was going to occur. And I quickly determined that um, we could not glide as far as a runway to return either to LaGuardia or to go across the river to the Teterboro Airport in New Jersey, and that the only place in the New York metropolitan area, which is obviously one of the most densely populated areas on the planet, that we could find to make a runway out of was the Hudson River, the only place long enough, wide enough, smooth enough even to attempt something like that. And we began to head that direction. Of course, our air traffic controller, Patrick Harden, you can hear his voice in the recording. He's trying desperately to find a way to get us back to a runway, but we couldn't glide that far. Our first officer, Jeff Skiles, and I uh, worked together seamlessly because he has a lot of experience also. He also has 20,000 hours of flying time like I do. And we were able to do something that people outside the industry find hard to, to imagine in such an intense crisis with so little time and such a high workload. 
where I didn't have time to have a conversation with him about what had happened and, and to direct his actions, he was able to immediately understand this developing situation as I did and know intuitively what he needed to do to help me. And so we collaborated wordlessly. I made only one announcement in the cabin. That's all I had time for. I didn't have time to tell them the whole story. I said, this is the captain brace for impact. And the flight attendants immediately began shouting their commands to the passengers to help them avoid injury during the landing so they would be able to evacuate. They began shouting, brace, brace, heads down, stay down. I could hear that through the cockpit door, and I was um, comforted by that, knowing we were on the same page working together as a team. The passengers themselves behaved uh, well, considering what a sudden life-threatening situation they found themselves in. As we began to descend toward the river, people sitting in the windows could see what was happening and began to try to contact their loved ones by text or by phone call. Um, New York Waterway, who operates the ferry service between New York and New Jersey, from their New, uh, New Jersey terminus, saw us heading toward the river. They radioed their ferries that were preparing for the afternoon rush hour uh, to turn toward us. The, the first New York Waterways ferry was there within four minutes of us touching down in the river. That was critical in such a cold day where the air temperature was 21, the water was 38 degrees. Mm. We were able to do something we'd never trained for. In fact, in our, in our flight simulators, you cannot practice a water landing. They aren't programmed for it. So believe it or not, the only training we'd ever gotten for a water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. Mm. So we had, as it turned out, only 208 seconds from the time the thrust loss occurred until we were in the water to solve a problem we'd never seen before, never specifically trained for, and get it right the first time. That's why our professional training, our well-defined roles and responsibilities, our teamwork skills were so critical that day. As we came ashore on both sides of the river, the, the police, the fire, the paramedics, uh, the American Red Cross, FBI, Coast Guard, and others were there to assist us. Um, in, in one funny episode, as we were coming ashore on both sides of the river, New York and New Jersey, each of the paramedics would ask us in turn, you know, it, because hypothermia was such a factor for all of us, and many people had gotten wet on such a cold day. They would ask us, can you feel your fingers? Can you feel your toes? <laughs> One young woman passenger said simply, oh, I'm used to this. I'm from Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> so, uh, But we were ultimately able to save everyone on board. But I didn't know for four hours, uh, I didn't get the word officially, that everyone had been accounted for. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, uh, uh, first off, thank you. Um, and, and again, I know you've uh, you've, been telling that story a lot over the last six or so years. But, you know, I think uh, one of the things that's probably easy to get lost in that is that pretty much everything worked perfectly, not just, you know, your crew, the, the flight attendants, the people on the ground. I mean, it really took all of that, didn't it? It really did. And uh, that's one of the things I think in hindsight that seems so remarkable about this to me is that we got so much so right so quickly under mm -hmm. such trying circumstances because we had built this firm foundation in preparation for whatever crisis we might face, never knowing what it was going to be or when it might be. And that's one of the big challenges of commercial aviation. We've made it so ultra safe. Uh, as we have reduced the accident rate, the accident causes have become more unique. You know, we picked the little hanging fruit. We no longer have a lot of accidents caused by engine failures on takeoff or by, you know, Landing gear or something. The landing like gear, things right. like that. Yeah. So now these these causes are more unique and harder to predict and harder to specifically train for. That's why this 
this paradigm of how you solve any problem in an airplane is so important for every pilot, every crew to have. And I have, uh, I've actually stayed in a hotel that overlooks that, uh, that site, and you had a couple bridges to deal with too, didn't you? We went over the GW Bridge, the eastern pier of it. Um, we were at about 1,300 feet above the surface at that point, so about 400 feet above the eastern pier. I was aware of it, but it wasn't a factor. People often ask me about that. People often ask me also if I had to, to turn to avoid boat traffic in the river, but on that day, there was very little boat traffic. I think I saw one barge heading up or down the river that we safely overflew, but I didn't have to turn even a single degree, change my heading at all to to avoid any boats. In fact, I turned left to go south on the river because I wanted to head where there would be boats, where I knew that the ferry terminals were on each side of the river and where there were boats that could rescue us quickly enough on such a cold day. Had you planned prior to that event uh, to retire as an airline pilot? No, uh, I was going to fly as long as I possibly could. Uh, which now is to the age of 65 in this country. Um, like many employees uh, at the airlines, um, since certainly since the September 11, 2001 terror attacks and the, the subsequent turmoil in, in the airline industry, the airline bankruptcies, airline employees have almost all lost their pensions and at a late stage in life when they don't have much time to make it up, we've taken huge pay cuts. I took a 40% pay cut at, at U.S. Airways. Mm-hmm. Our first officer, Jeff Scalzo, used to be a captain, and with the cutbacks, was forced into the right seat to be a first officer. Took a pay cut, a demotion, just for going from captain to first officer, plus the forty percent pay cut on top of it. So his pay is sixty percent. Yeah, we'd taken a hit. We'd been hit by an economic tsunami of change, um, and that was the reality we were all facing. Uh, there have been a few. Um, yeah, People have lost homes. There have been divorces because of the turmoil and the financial stress. Um, we were all on the work till you die program. Mm. I was the same. Um, but this series of opportunities that have come my way since then have completely changed the picture for us, fortunately. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, and again, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, none of my listeners are in. I mean, you're in a unique situation. But I think many of my listeners look for what. You know, might be the right opportunity for them. Look for you know finding work that they're passionate about. Um, would you say that um, that that this change, which I wouldn't say was forced on you, but certain certainly uh, some doors opened that uh, uh, that have you you know on television, have you speaking, having you do doing some things that maybe weren't normal for a you know an everyday pilot, so to speak. Um, so w- would you say that that had? I mean, how would you describe how that's changed your life? Oh my goodness, for everyone on that airplane and their families, this was one of those events that changes your life instantly, completely, and if not forever, for a very long time. It's one of those events that divides one's life into a before and an after. Mm. Um, it, it was something that no one can really prepare for, um, especially for, for me since in spite of my best efforts to remind everyone that this was a group effort, that many people contributed to this outcome that we had, in spite of that, I've gotten most of the attention. I've become the public face of this event, and I've had most of the opportunities. So for me and my family, our lives changed as soon as my name was released to the press, uh, and satellite trucks were in front of our house for 10 days. I was getting, you know, 50,000 communications from around the world in the first few weeks. Um, there, there really is no preparation for that. But I, I will say that, and, and this is one of the things I talk about, is that 
we never know what tomorrow's going to be, but we have an obligation to prepare ourselves well for whatever it is, whether it's a crisis or whether it's a sudden opportunity. And it was all the work I did for 40 years before this that allowed me to solve the problems that we faced that day and to be quick, quickly learn how to become a public figure in the aftermath. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, that is, uh, th- that's absolutely a trait of the, the best leaders is, you know, even in a business, things come at you, entire industries change, and, and that being able to react, um, I think you called it as, as second nature. I mean, you didn't have time to think about it, so if you're not prepared you and it's not second nature, then you, you won't accomplish it. And I think that that's certainly, a, a, would you say that that is a, a trait that uh, a great deal of your military training Brought to bear? I think it's a combination of the military training and everything I learned in the business world and the aviation world since then. I think it was a combination of, of all the lessons that I tried to learn. I think we each look to certain people who might be mentors of ours. We, I know throughout my flying career, I would always admire certain people who, who made it smooth and professional and it made it look easy even when we all knew the job isn't. Yeah. Um, and I think that they, they brought a lot of passion to the job, and I think having found my last passion at such an early age was a huge advantage. It made me willing to work hard to become more expert at it. It gave me satisfaction. And I think from that kind of satisfaction, we can ultimately derive purpose and perhaps even meaning from what we do. Um, but I think all those things are important. What is so five? I think we're actually six years almost into uh, from from an anniversary of the event, if we want to call it that. Um, what does your day look like now? Well, now when I work too hard, it's my own fault. <laughs> so, which is still too often. But I've done a, a better job about achieving a better balance. You know, at first, you know, the opportunities were coming so often, and right. and I should also say that initially they were coming only for me. Mm-hmm. The very first invitations we got to the inauguration and the Super Bowl were only for me alone. And um, somehow, even uh, in that moment when I was provided these opportunities and I was still in shock and deep in the throes of PTSD, as we all were in those first few days and weeks, uh, I had the presence of mind to know what my response had to be when I received some of those invitations. And it was to ask uh, the president. President-elect Obama, when he invited me to the inauguration, to say, I'd be honored to be there, Mr. President-elect, but may I presume to ask that should I be able to attend it be on the condition that my crew and their families accompany me? And happily, he said yes. And so I've I've tried to include others to the extent that I could, but um, a life-changing event for all of us very early on. Well, how how do you, from a work standpoint, though, um, are you... Now, because obviously, while the notoriety is still there, some of the the pace has slowed down. So, do you do you speak, uh, you know, a fair amount now? Do you uh, write, or you you know, you run a company as well? So, I am I am actually writing several pieces right now uh, that are going to be posted soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I do most of my time is spent speaking, uh, speak, speaking, and uh, I've I've really come to enjoy it. It was something that I had to learn also. It was something I'd never really done much of, uh, but it's amazing what you can learn. And I applied the same discipline, diligence in learning you know, the, the speaking skills as I had my flying career. And so I, I, people often know that I retired from the airline and they think I retired, yeah. but of course I haven't at all. I, I traded the one flying profession for four others as a speaker, author, consultant, CBS News, aviation and safety expert for their news programs. And unfortunately, we recently had another crash that uh, demanded that um, I use those skills on camera. Uh, 
Yeah. So so that so so the question is because those opportunities presented themselves, um, you know, how did you how did you learn to become a speaker? I mean, how did that was that was a pretty dramatic life change or, or career change, really. So how, oh, did, how, how did you acquire, um, go about acquiring the skills that you knew you needed if you were going to excel at that? Well, you know, I, uh, it was, again, a matter initially of preparation. You know, I, I had huge advantages growing up in a safe, stable environment in which education was valued, ideas were important, and striving for excellence was expected of me. My my. My, uh, my grandparents, all of whom were born in the 19th century, attended college, all four of them, especially yeah, especially remarkable for women yeah, of that era. Yeah. My mother was a first-grade teacher for 25 years in a small Texas town where I grew up, Eisenhower's birthplace, Denison, Texas. My father was a professional, so uh, I had that huge advantage, the natural intellectual curiosity, the love of learning, the love of reading. I was a literate fellow, and I, I always loved reading a variety of things, things that either interested me or, or that I considered important or both. And so I think um, being well-read, having thought throughout my life about important concepts, including leadership uh, and what they meant and what I thought about them based on my life experiences, and, and I was an autodidact trying to learn as much as I could on my own about these things. It gave me the raw material to, to work with. And then I think I had a pretty good intuitive grasp of what I needed to be able to do, so instead of you know, going to coaches or that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I just uh, practiced, and um, I, I began to become a better storyteller, and that's ultimately what it's about. And so, it became a very much a block building, step by step process. And you learn to have a certain number of stories or modules that you can connect. And as long as you know the on ramps and the off ramps, then you can create a narrative arc, have a beginning, a middle, and an end and they have alternative paths of getting there, um, but still have a coherent whole. And wow. that's that's what I've learned to do. And um, in the last five years, I've been doing it without notes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, I've become much more comfortable with I, it. I think, you, I think you could probably write a book on that, <laughs> on that topic alone. The advice you just gave right there is, is spot on. Um, let, let me ask you um, a question. As you got pulled in these, a lot of you know your decisions were probably you know, gut reaction or maybe even emotional hey, they want me to do this, okay. Um, did, it, has there been a point where you have, like you did that day on the Hudson, have course corrected <laughs> yeah, this career change and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop getting pulled in that direction. Here, I'm going to put my foot down and, and here's what I'm going to stand for. Oh, my gosh, I make course corrections, I mean, minor ones on a daily basis. I mean, and I have a team who helped me to do that. And I also, and this is something I've written about, something I speak about, you know, it's these core values, these important ideas that I've thought about my whole life that kind of um, serve two functions. They're sort of a compass to help me keep pointed you know, my feet in the uphill direction if I'm trying to reach the summit. And they also uh, form guardrails to keep me from making egregious errors. And when I, uh, when I encounter people and they, they talk about what I've done in the last year, in the last few years to be um, a speaker, an author, a consultant, and and also in a lot of pro bono events, talking about helping causes I care about, whether it's the American Red Cross or Guide Dogs to the Blind or others, um, or simply being an advocate for the traveling public. And really, the traveling public often doesn't have an effective advocate. The 
the airlines have their trade associations, they have their lobbyists, and believe me, I've learned how active they are on the Hill <laughs> and at OMB and at DOT, uh, often working against the interests of passengers to to rein in costs, to re, re be uh, uh, excluded from what they consider burdensome safety requirements, um, which is surprising to a lot of people. I feel like it's my duty to use this notoriety to be an effective spokesperson for the traveling public, you know, for the piloting profession, to make sure that the highest standards are, um, are enforced. And I, I think there's also a strong business case for that. I, I've learned as I've talked to audiences as not diverse as nuclear power to financial risk managers and everything in between, uh, how common our, our concerns are, all the, the challenges that we face. Because what we're talking about ultimately is how to improve human performance in complicated systems that involve inherent risk. So um, as I've talked to more audiences, I know what a compelling business case there is for quality and for safety. Getting it right the first time is always better and cheaper than having a bad outcome and having to fix it later. That's also one of my big messages. In again, going back to the uh, the world of piloting, I'm, I'm sure that you know you, you analyze. Okay, this runway is shorter than you know normal runways, or you know on this flight path, I'm going to have this. You know, here are the here are the potential risks. I'm sure that's kind of a, even if it's just a mental checklist. Um, how do you? Uh, how have you encountered? And not that what you did or what you've done now with your business is that risky, but just being in business you know, has risks um, uh, for a lot of people. And I think it's actually what stops some people from going into business. How have you uh, applied kind of your maybe uh, prior training to, you know, navigating the, the, the risk and reward in owning a business? And I think that's, that's one of the hard parts about it. And that's something that people typically are not good at. If you, if you watch the news, if you look at some of the studies that have been done, people are not good estimators of risk. Yeah. Intuitively, we tend to overestimate risks that, that, while rare, have high consequence, whether it's a terrorist attack or something else, when your chances of having been involved in that are just literally infinitesimal. And they tend to underestimate risks that are more common, but also can be really bad. You know, the risk of not wearing a seatbelt, for example, things we can control. So I, we need to look at risks twofold. Uh, the more common risks that, while they might not be, you know, globally catastrophic can have really bad consequences for you, your business, your family, but that are more likely. And then the rare events that, uh, whether it's a hurricane or a flood or something else, um, are rare, but could really be devastating. And we need to, to have a good understanding of what the actual risks are by having actual data, or getting it wherever possible. And this is where your, your circle of friend, your friends, your, um, your advisors, your crew, can help you. Um, and there are experts in many of these fields who are available to be consulted. And it's important that we understand risk not only singly in isolation, but, but in aggregate. And we understand the connections, the fact that, and this is something we've learned well in aviation, that bad outcomes are almost never the result of a single failure, a single error, a single fault. Instead, they are the end result of a causal chain of events. And so if you can learn a little bit about the science of safety and, and quality and, and risk, if you begin to sensitize yourself to see these risks and look for them, then you can see the links in the chain beginning to add up and you can intervene before it's too late. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think because a lot of the systems have redundancy built in, so you're right. It's that that chain of events that is really hard to uh, to estimate that uh, is, is often the, the the cause of real problems. And so it's important that you continue to make investments in human development in the people. Yeah. Uh, you need to take a hard look at your systems and and look for weaknesses, look for risk, and and proactively mitigate it before it it bites you. Well, Captain, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. This is a, a fabulous, fascinating story. I'm, I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with it, but, but getting to hear it uh, from you and, and your great advice and what you've learned and taken from the last uh, six years uh, has really been fabulous. Is there some place you want if to, so, if people want to find out more about uh, what you were doing and uh, your, your books and things, is there a place you would send people? Yes, I have a website, sullysullenberger.com. And you'll find it all there, including my my books, the most recent pieces I've done for CBS News, um, and events coming up. Right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, you know, I uh, do a significant amount of flying around the country, speaking myself. So maybe we'll bump into you on the uh, the passenger side of, of one of these flights. Uh, sometimes chances soon. are good because I fly in the back a lot. <laughs> all right. Take care, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John.